Welcome to the podcast of ITFA 2018. My name is Orwane Rabia. I'm ITFA's Artistic Director. In this podcast, we're presenting a selection of recordings from the year's industry sessions and doc talks. This episode features the industry talk SVOD platforms repositioning the European digital single market. Our documentary industry is going through major changes that we, the documentary community, need to discuss between new EU regulations and the influential demand of streaming giants. Are we facing a great new opportunity or are we losing one? This industry talk was co-hosted with Creative Europe Desk for the Netherlands and Flanders. Guests are Marijn Dauverstein of the European Commission, Axel Arno of the European Broadcasting Union and SVT, Justine Negan of POV, James Bridges of I Wonder, Paul Powells of the European Documentary Network. The session was moderated by Simon Kilmery of the International Documentary Association and was recorded on November 20th, 2018. This industry talk is called um, Re- SVOD repositioning the documentary film market, and and we are seeing you know major changes in in the market, um, uh, um, which and I think in a, in a lot of conversations those changes are perceived as threats. But I also think there are lots of opportunities for how this market is being reshaped. Um, uh, we're seeing changes in how the European Union is looking at the regulatory framework in, in the SVOD marketplace. Um, uh, and um, just to give a little bit of context, uh, Netflix, for instance, in just in this past quarter, uh, has spent uh, $3 billion in original content. And that's not all documentary, clearly, uh, but it's a lot of money. And they will, by the end of uh, the, their fiscal year, have spent between 12 and $13 billion dollars uh, on content. Um, we've seen Amazon Prime enter the marketplace. Um, in the United States and North America, Hulu um, uh, has been uh, both commissioning and acquiring documentaries, um, uh, YouTube originals. Uh, Apple is uh, projected to spend about $1 billion uh, on content. So that certainly kind of shifts um, the marketplace in terms of what um, it means for filmmakers, what it means for public media, what it means for, for, um, for policy. Um, so we're going to be hearing from, from these folks uh, today uh, about how they're working within this marketplace. Um, a little bit of history. We've seen these disruptions in the market before. Certainly not on this scale, perhaps, um, but uh, um, uh, from the U.S. perspective, I remember when Discovery first started and it was kind of a mirror of public television content, it felt like, and it felt you know, somewhat existential for public television at that point. Uh, could they compete with this well-funded commercial enterprise? But then we saw that market uh, begin to recalibrate, and, uh, and I think um, our, our speakers will be able to, to talk to that too. There are other issues like um, transparency. You know, how does the uh, SVOD market um, look when compared to public media in particular when it comes to issues of transparency and how is this kind of influx of money shaping how 
documentary stories are being told? Um, uh, how, how is it shaping what kinds of, of stories um, are being being supported? Um, but so let me um, uh, proceed by you know introducing our panel. Uh, uh, to my right, we have Maureen uh, Duvistin. Is that? Right? I'm sorry, James Bridges. James Bridges, my wonder, uh, from Singapore. Um, um, Justine, Justine Nagan, uh, who is the executive producer of POV, but also the executive director of American Documentary. Uh, Marine Duivestein from the European Commission. Um, and Axel Arnold, who's wearing two hats for both the EBU, uh, European Broadcasting Union, um, and uh, SVT in Sweden. Um, we hope that Paul Powells um, will be able to join us from uh, the European Documentary Network. He had a scheduling conflict. Um, so he may join us um, a little bit later. Um, so the format for today is each of our each of our panelists um, are going to do a short presentation, up to eight minutes, probably shorter, uh, and we'll have a conversation. And I'm going to encourage all of you to be think as as your colleagues are presented, also to be thinking about questions, uh, comments. Um, and once they're done, um, uh, we'll be opening it up to the floor uh, for all of you to participate. So uh, we'll have a roaming mic, so wait for that to come to you. Uh, but you'll definitely have a chance to engage with all of these um, uh, smart people up here. Um, so let me start um, with Axel, Axel Arno from the European, um, uh, from EBU and SVT. Axel, the floor is yours. Thank you, Simon. Happy to be here. Um, firstly, I am SVT, which is a public service broadcaster in the Northern Europe. We're, uh, you know, uh, we are the originals. You might think we always talk about uh, the disruptive uh, new SVOD platforms and all that we are about to lie down and die. We're not dead yet, and we won't die in the near future. I mean, we first had commercial TV that didn't kill us. We then have pay TV, we had cable TV, we had all sorts of things. But we are, it, the thing is, we are adapting. Public service is needed in the world, and that's my mantra, and that, you know, that's what I'm going to talk about here as well. It's a rapidly changing market, no doubt, but we are also changing a bit slower, maybe, but we are changing and we are adapting. So I was going to, I was going to say also that um, we need a little bit of perspective in this discussion. So. SVT is a small broadcaster. We always rely on co-production, co-financing, co-working with, with our fellows. So we are a very active member of the European Broadcasting Union. So can I have a, a slide, the first slide? I'm just going to show you a little bit of what it looks like in Europe at the moment. Maybe, oh, can I do it myself? It's fantastic. Is it the green button, maybe? There, wow. So here we have Europe. And uh, you might think that we have very low market share. That's true for some countries, but in some countries we have a very big market share still. Um, of the and this is actually this is television, liner liner television is not FVOD, not SVOD. But why I'm showing this slide is is to say that we are a market that is uh, a bit asymmetrical. So we are all adapting in dif on different. Uh, ways and in different paces. So, of course, uh, markets which are red are more sensitive. Markets which are blue are a bit less sensitive to the market disruptions at the moment. Uh, typically, 
the Netflix uh, or SVOD penetration is very asymmetrical too. So in the Nordic countries, although we have a very strong market share, we also have a very strong uh, SVOD share. I think uh, Netflix penetration in Sweden is like is more than a million. About we have maybe one and a half million households for Netflix on 10 million people. That's a lot. While in France or other countries, TV is still king. But Netflix are coming. We know that. Not only Netflix, by the way. We shouldn't talk only about them. They are great, but they also have Amazon, Apple, who God knows who's coming in and disturbing the market. Ooh. Yeah. Okay, let me show you the next slide um, why we need co-production. These are... This is a little bit of what the EBU is, the community. Um, in 56 countries, 162 languages, 119 member organizations, that's a lot. 489 TV channels, uh, 1.05 billion people. So the market is gigantic, of course, um, and we have a big responsibility to our audiences. So let's, let's talk a little bit about, about the habits of the EBU people. Well, you know what? They actually watch TV. Not all of them. Uh, we absolutely have a problem with getting the young people to watch TV. They watch less TV. Of course they do. I watched less TV when I was young, but, the, but nowadays kids they don't watch any TV. Uh, which is a problem in the long run for all the public service broadcasters because in order to be legitimate for our audiences, we have to be there for all ages, all demographic, all you know, levels of income, levels of interest, cross, all cross. That's our remit. We have to be there for our audience. So that's a, that's a really big challenge for us. But we have a good reach still, uh, and uh, that's why it's very important to do this transition and uh, to do it in a good way because we still have huge numbers watching regular TV. Uh, and they watch many minutes, as you see, TV daily. So how do we do this transition over to online? How do we measure? These are things that we are actually talking about every day. You know, we're still have, we still have problems finding the right instruments to measure success when we go online. Um, ratings are always easy, but it's not really working as the only measure. So we need to find new ways of measuring. Um, I should say that different channels have different strategies um, within the EBU community. Uh, my SVT, we're, we, we are now web first, whatever that means. Well, it actually means that we consider internet to be the first window where we publish things. So for example, um, I am I have uh, two, three slots a week, and the whole documentary output is typically six, ten slots a week. We publish everything on a Sunday morning at six o'clock. So it's raining or it's very dark, which is always is in Sweden at this time of year. You can watch all the films online on Sunday, and then my mom can see them on TV, you know, the next week. This is this is how it works now, and uh, it's actually working pretty nice. Uh, Simon showed uh, uh, some, didn't show, you said a few figures about how much the net giants are investing, and that's all fine. You know, you know, I'm just saying 
they are, their contribution in terms of cash is fantastic to this market. We should just applaud that. It's really great. It's full of, of opportunities. But don't forget this. I mean, we're outspending them. But we're not, we are not only, uh, of course, doing documentaries. No, no, no. We are doing that. This is including news and drama and everything. But just to put a little perspective into things, we are still doing a lot and we are producing a lot of original content. Uh, I can let that stay, I think. Or should we go back to. Yes. So, what I want to say is uh, that, of course, these net giants are disturbing the market. There, it's not only bad. It has made us look at ourselves in the mirror and think, what should we as public service be in the new streaming world? I mean, our remit has always been inform, educate and entertain. That's very old. This was BBC when BBC Radio started in the 1920s. But it's still valid. We have to look for programs that the audience didn't know that they needed. We need informed and curious citizens. That's, that's what we have to produce for uh, our country. Uh, this looks maybe sounds a little stupid, but, but we're always in it. So when it comes to finding algorithms, and Netflix are fantastic in, in finding algorithms, and their engineers earn fortunes for that, uh, we, have to, we are working now to find our own algorithms. What is that then? A public service algorithm, which would include, you saw this, you also, we think you like that, but would also have that you know, magical public service algorithm that would give you a program that you didn't know that you needed, um, which would be like zapping, like you did before. You didn't know. So we um, are working on that. Nobody has sort of cut it yet. I've heard that CBC has a really good algorithm, Canada. So uh, we're interested in that. We're looking at that at the moment. Ah, what more? Yeah, so it's, only, it's not only about cash, it all, it's also about values. And we in the public service uh, sector, uh, we had a meeting on Sunday where we where were talking about how to cooperate more, even more, how to cooperate with the net giants. I mean, you know, on the face of it, they would be our enemy, but we're looking at ways, can we, can we cooperate with them? Can we co-produce with them? I thought it was great that, for example, we managed to have Netflix as a friend at the table at the forum. I thought that's a great achievement because they were very wary of what to say because they have corporate rules and they have shareholders and now they're getting more open. Fine. You know, we're struggling, they're struggling, that's all right. Uh, also, I have to say, we as public service broadcasters are very wary of that we cannot only chase American big films. We have to find other ways of distinguishing our work. So we are looking at ways to go together, couple of big broadcasters that can have some cash, and then work with producers, filmmakers to develop new ideas, and then keep them in the European realm. We also need to do stories from here, and we need to spread them locally uh, and uh, to, to go all, all over the globe, but not on the streaming giant platforms, but on our platforms. So we're working on that, and we're trying to create new infrastructure for that. EBU group is one thing, one thing. There is a new fund that we're working with uh, that can amplify that. And we have different ways of working together that I'm, I think is looking really good. So we will be there for you also. 
uh, we will probably not chase all the ready-made American films. Uh, we also want all the great films in the world, but we realize we have to produce them, not only buy them or pre-buy them. So that's it. Yeah, I think I'll stop there. For now. Okay. <coughs> Thank you, Axel. Um, a couple of things um, before we go on to Justine. Uh, you know, you, you, the slide you showed, uh, one of the slides you showed um, illustrated this kind of gap in the in the youth market, or this drop in the youth market. And I think it, when I was in, in public television in the U.S., we we used to talk about we have them as children. They go away until they're 55, and then they come back. Um, um, but what? What are the strategy, strategies, and this I think is also kind of coupled with, there's not only an immense buying power um, from some of the streaming giants, but it's refreshing to see how the EBU numbers uh, compete with that. But there's also kind of a marketing power, um, which has always been a challenge in public service television of investing in content and then not having the, the marketing power, which also may reach some of those younger people. How, what's happening? In this, are there discussions around that? Is that something that's... Well, I, w I wouldn't know all the discussions that goes on in different fields. I, I work primarily in documentary, but I can tell you in, in my own company, uh, we saw the decline many times. It, it's, it's, like a, it's like a hammock. This, you know, you have, have the kids here, and then, and then they leave mom and dad, which is SVT, and they go to commercial TV, and they go to YouTube, and, they go, and then you think they grow up and they come back. Not at 55, maybe at 45. But the thing is, they, come, they, they leave earlier and they come back later. And we don't think they're ever going to come back. So we need to do something about that, of course. But uh, our children's department, they're very, very good at, at you know, and catching the children. They have a very good um, uh, contact with the young audience. So I think we're building a lot on their work in order to you know, get them to understand that SVT is actually something that you can watch. Uh, some, some of our problems is that a lot of young people, they wouldn't know what we do. So when, whilst there's, there, when they find our programs, they think, wow, this is great. Why didn't I know this? Right. So uh, in terms of marketing, we, we probably have a problem there. We need to go out and on different places. But it's a bit tricky because then there are other giants American giants that will have all our money, <laughs> the license payers' money, because we do ads on Facebook or on Twitter or on other places. Should we do that? I'm not sure. Maybe, maybe not. Do you guys have any questions for, for Axel before we move on? I'd like you to send me those slides. <laughs> I think those are, those are great. All right. And I love the spending number. Yeah, it's fantastic. Um, Let's okay. just keep it flowing. So, um, so, um, Justine, Axel mentioned uh, the the possibility of finding ways to cooperate with some of the um, the SVOD giants, and I know you, that's something that you've been thinking of. But so let me give the floor to you, and um, and perhaps that's also something you can address when you're talking. Sure. Uh, so I am Justine Egan, executive director of American Documentary, and we are a small uh, nonprofit based in Brooklyn, New York. And we produce two series. One is POV, uh, and one is America Reframed. And I'm one of two executive producers for those two series. And I'm fighting a cold, so bear with my, uh, <laughs> my voice. Um, so POV is the longest running independent documentary strand on American television. 
Um, Simon was my predecessor in this job uh, three years ago. POV's been running for over 30 years um, on PBS, and each year we curate between 15 and 17 feature films, about a dozen shorts, and then a handful of interactive uh, documentaries each year. Um, those films are contemporary, point of view, uh, artist-driven films. Um, so it's, it's, I was talking to my colleague here earlier, it's, it's both broad uh, and narrow. Um, so for us, uh, we've been in the game a long time, and I think, you know, building on what Axel said, uh, the world has, has totally caught up. Um, and today I'm talking, I'm supposed to represent the United States perspective, which, uh, as we know, is, is kind of a sad name tag to have um, these days. But, um, and I should also say that American perspective is, is uh, you know, there's so many different documentary strands in America, commercial and non-commercial. So um, I'll do my best to talk uh, from the POV lens, but with my colleagues in mind today. Um, so one of the things uh, that Axel said is, is uh, you know, the field is changing and, and talking about it becoming a marketplace. And for us, um, that impacts us in many ways. I think some of it is around uh, all of those new players, whether it's the ones that have been talked about or the new ones like Apple and YouTube and everyone has great anticipation um, looking at Sundance and what these new players are gonna be um, doing this year. Uh, in the States right now, um, Three of the biggest box office successes uh, in theaters were documentaries this year. Uh, RBG, Three Identical Strangers, and Won't You Be My Neighbor. Um, so, you know, two years ago when Netflix uh, broke all these records by what they spent at uh, Sundance, and that, that had a lot of implications that I can talk about if you're interested. Um, and then prices went down again, and now, you know, people are looking at this box office swing um, as kind of another bellwether of, uh, it's indeed being a thriving marketplace, uh, which I have some real questions about. Um, so some of the good things that have happened because of these new players, um, I think creatively the field is maturing as well. I think there's new approaches. I think artists are taking more risks. I think the form is being pushed in really interesting ways, which is a good thing. Um, I think that there are new voices um, entering, the, entering the field. Um, you know, in addition, though, to those filmmakers, there are also uh, new sales agents entering the field and new investors entering the field. Uh, and I don't think, you know, you used to come to a festival and you would meet people and there would usually be a perceived shared set of values on what brought you to the work. And it usually was um, the art or the social justice uh, or some combination um, thereof. And these days, you, you can't assume that, maybe you never should have, but you, know, you can't assume that anymore, and, and that's okay, but there, there are people that are entering the field with uh, an idea that it can be, that they, the goal of a piece might be to make money, um, which is their prerogative, but we have to be aware of that and, um, uh, and approach conversations accordingly. Uh, some of the other good things, um, you know, I never in my life thought that I would see multiple billboards on Sunset Boulevard for, document, for document, uh, documentaries and documentarians, and that is amazing, and full-page ads in the New York Times. And that's happening in America. I don't know if it's happening here, but it's real, and it's awesome. Um, and those are funds that um, public broadcasters, you know, both wouldn't have and, and wouldn't choose to spend the money that way, but that's, for independent filmmakers, that's an amazing, amazing thing. Um, and I think it's important for us not to discount that. Um, 
One other challenge uh, is that foundations who in the states have been a lifeblood of this field, um, philanthropic support has kept the field afloat in America, and many of them, with all these new players and new money is entering the field, are questioning and really looking inwardly and talking about, is this still a good investment? Is it needed? Um, and to what end? If they invest in films and uh, the films get purchased by a big player and then a bunch of that money instead of going to the artist goes to pay back investors. Um, do, do philanthropic funders feel like they're still contributing to a healthy ecosystem? I think there, there's real questions there and, and that conversation's happening. Um, so how does, that, how does that impact us and, and where does it leave us? Um, in the States right now, it's, it's two things. It's, it's very crowded and it's ever-changing. Um, I, our colleague and friend uh, Molly Thompson, who works at A&E in the States, had an article uh, this week in Vanity Fair that said she was responding to the um, Netflix algorithm question, and she said, well, when they zig, we must zag. And I was like, all right, Molly, that's, uh, you know, it's, it's really important. Um, so what have we done to do that? Um, and I really, you know, Axel said it, and I want to reiterate, it's made us really look inward, and that, that introspection has been a really good thing, not a bad thing. Um, it would have happened anyway, but I think uh, it's forced it you know, probably earlier and more uh, severely than might have happened organically. Um, we have to do a better job telling our story um, across whether that's marketing, whether that's on social media, whether that's with slides, uh, whatever it is, you know, word of mouth, we have to do a better job telling our story and the unique values that we bring. Um, we also, you know, I find myself now when working with filmmakers and meeting with them at meat markets and, uh, and things like, like IDFA, um, being really upfront with filmmakers and saying, what are your goals for this film? Um, and here's what we can provide. And if you're looking for an all right sale or if you're looking for, um, you know, certain financial uh, remuneration or certain awards, I can't promise that. And that's okay. And, and those conversations that, again, would have happened later with filmmakers were, were having much earlier. And, um, and I think that honesty goes a long way and saves people a lot of trouble. Um, we've taken a hard look at our slate and really thinking about what do we do differently and better than anyone else and how do we continue to do that and build on that. Um, I think some of that is understanding that you know, with all this new money in the ecosystem, there's this idea that filmmakers should be making more money and they should be having a more sustainable career. And uh, the IDA just released a, a survey that's it's really sobering and it shows that most filmmakers are still operating without a safety net and it's very precarious. And that, that those new funds, you know, maybe for one to five percent of filmmakers, they may be reaping the benefits, but for the vast majority of filmmakers, it is not filtering down, particularly for women and, and filmmakers of color. Um, and that's something that I think it's always been a commitment of public broadcasters, um, but I think we can even do a better job uh, keeping that in mind. Uh, Simon mentioned uh, partnerships, um, and that's been something uh, we've been inspired, you know, looking at our European brethren, and they've done a great job of, of collaborating and working together. Um, we don't have quite the same situation in the United States, but um, 
I, I'll briefly go through a few of the partnerships we're doing that I think are helping uh, keeping us ahead of the game. So PBS launched its own distribution, theatrical distribution arm, uh, which has been a game changer for us. So now um, when we go to the major festivals like Sundance, sales agents that would maybe come to us second or third are still keeping us in that kind of first uh, loop of, of kind of A sales, A potential sales, because we have uh, the potential to do a robust theatrical um, release along with our broadcast and streaming, which is really important. Uh, on the shorts, we launched a new shorts initiative, um, which I won't go into detail about because there's not time, but the idea is that it's exclusive broadcasting and non-exclusive streaming so that we partner with organizations like the New York Times OpDocs, Field Division, so filmmakers basically get paid twice and they get double the audience. They get the broadcast audience um, and then they get a double digital audience, which is excellent. Um, we've partnered with the streaming platforms uh, in a few different ways. So um, each season for the last three seasons, we've taken one film that's been kind of a second window film that's had significant online exposure prior to it coming to us, but we felt like we could still bring a new and organic audience to that film. Uh, we paid less for those films, um, but it was very successful. And to their credit, uh, both Netflix and Hulu worked with us, and Magnolia, the, the distributor, worked with us to secure those deals, and it was good for the filmmaker, it was good for audiences, um, and it was good across the board. Uh, I wanna give a shout out to Amazon Festival Stars, that program. Uh, where if a film premiered at, um, I think it's like 10 or 12 festivals, uh, they would get a, um, a straight offer from Amazon. And that program has allowed the broadcasters, particularly the public broadcasters, um, filmmakers know their option, that they have that uh, streaming deal, that offer that's there. They can, their sales agent can put a deal together that includes broadcasters and gives um, an attractive alternative to an all rights deal. Um, my understanding is that program may be on hold, so like I said, it's changing every day. We'll see what happens, but um, that has been something that's allowed for really good partnerships. Uh, and then lastly, on the partnerships front, um, we uh, develop, well, developed, produced, um, what we didn't produce, we paid for. <laughs> it's hard, Minding the Gap, is, uh, which played here at the festival, was a film that came out of my last job at Cartemquin where I did help develop and produce it, but on my POV side, um, we came in at Rough Cut Stage, helped co-produce it with ITVS. Um, it was a huge hit at Sundance, and he got many, many offers, and for Bing, it was really important to have a younger audience. It's a film about skateboarding, and about coming of age, and about masculinity. And so um, one of those offers was from Hulu. And so uh, over many months, we worked with uh, the team and their sales agent and with Hulu to do a partnership deal where it is still a Hulu original, but it is coming to POV afterwards. Um, and it's a complicated deal and it's a bit of an experiment, but we feel really positive and encouraged that it happened. Bing's really happy with the deal. Um, and I think, you know, should it go well for everybody, I think it could be something that could be explored for the right films moving forward. Um, and then just a few other ways that we've dealt with these challenges. Um, we've staffed up and staffed for the future, so really thinking about who's the team that we need um, to work on these things and think creatively and forward-looking. Um, we've rethought our acquisitions fee structures and are working on our co-productions, which has included increasing our fees. Um, which for me as a nonprofit means I have to fundraise to increase those fees, but, um, but it's something that had to happen. 
Uh, and then I think, you know, just in general, again, building on what Axel said, I, I think that, you know, there is a greater need than ever now for public broadcasting, um, both on the audience end. I think, you know, in America, there's a lot of talk of fake news, and people are looking for authentic, independent voices, and I think we bring them uh, better than anyone else. We're also, in addition to being artist-centered, we're community-centered. Um, in addition to doing broadcasting and streaming, we also do um, in-person events across the country in communities, so with public libraries, with churches, jails, uh, you name it. Um, we do in-person screenings, and I think that that differentiates us um, from our competitors. And you know, the other thing is just like being able to go with the flow and know that um, we're not going anywhere, that these business models can change on a dime, and really being consistent and thinking about our values um, and you know, what we've been doing on these years, how we can do them better, but how we can keep to our core mission and help filmmakers. Um, thank you, Justine. That's, that's fascinating, and, and it's kind of inspiring to hear how you are um, using this as an opportunity to kind of sharpen the work that the, the, the American documentary is doing through POV. Um, uh, a couple of thoughts, and this is um, really, f f I guess, for you and, and for Axel. Something you mentioned was um, uh, the notion that, and, and this has always been a funny kind of business, right, is uh, there is a philanthropic um, part, especially in the United States and, and in, in Europe, where there are um, either foundations or there are national funds or regional funds which help support the development of work, the production of work, um, uh, and now you have some of, the, some of that work ending up on some of the commercial platforms. I'm not sure how that's working um, in Europe, but um, what are some of the conversations you're having um, with foundations and how does that affect your funding or the ability for filmmakers to get that, that kind of funding? Yeah, um, they've been happening on multiple fronts. I mean, some of the um, some of the foundations are agnostic, right? And they say, "Look, we are trusting we're trusting the filmmakers and their teams that they're going to make the best deals for themselves, and they're going to trust, you know. And we are supporting the filmmaker and their film team." and we don't care where it ends up um, because we assume, if we're gonna fund a filmmaker, we're gonna assume that they're gonna know um, and make the best deal that they can for their film. Um, other filmmakers um, or other foundations are, I would say are more troubled by it, both thinking what I said earlier just about the ecosystem, um, particularly around the new investors that are coming into the field, which, again, we, we're an under-resourced field. We need the money. <laughs> like, we need more money. We need new players. So it's not, you know, and, and investors are like anything else. There are some, um, there are some that are good for the field and, and some that are not. Um, but if a filmmaker, you know, needs, needs money to finish the film and the only funding on the table is from an investor that has terrible deal terms, um, and the filmmaker feels, you know, cornered into taking that deal, uh, and then that that investor, whether it's a person or an entity, puts their name or logo all over the film, and everyone else gets wiped away, including the foundation. That's really challenging. And for these foundations, saying, "How do we go back to our boards and say that our work is valuable and our work is necessary when we're being virtually erased um, by these other partners that maybe put in a fraction of the money we did?" Um, 
So I think it's an ongoing conversation. It's by no means, um, there's been no conclusions met, but I think, and it's, for me, what's been great is that we're having the conversation and that we're being open about it. And I think, um, you know, I think education and, and discussion is the only way we're actually gonna move forward on it and keep telling funders how important their money is, so. Mm -hmm. Well, we have a slightly different view when it comes to logos and, and you know, preventing the film to go on public service. Of course not. Uh, most of us have rules against that. We cannot have any private entity, you know, tapestry logo over the, all over the film. That's actually not okay. Uh, it's even not an arena. We can't do it. Uh, my personal view, there's not a pan-European view about this. My personal view is that, of course, if public money is used to fund a film, uh, I, I feel really bad when it's, when it's not available on public TV. Mm -hmm. It should be there, and it should be there for the whole uh, VOD license uh, license period, being non-exclusive. That's not a problem for us. But but our audiences, the European audience that actually paid for this, should be able to see it. So um, I think you're gonna you're gonna see that. Having said that, I think there's also uh, an an awareness that we have to maybe pay a little bit more in the future to get those rights. Because it's, after all, what's happening now, it's sort of a rights war. Uh, we invite the filmmakers to work with us. You want your films to be shown. What's the point of trying to limit broadcasters from watching your film when we've been with you from day one? And then when you're doing the co-production deal, I get the, the worst term, terms ever because some other <laughs> private you know, equity partner is, you know, tries to limit us. That's not okay. Work with us. Uh, also, I'd, I'd like to say a few things about marketing and impact campaigns and all that. I mean, we are our own impact campaign. We, I, we, we have, I think, about, let's say that 55% of the Swedish audience watch TV at 9, 8.30 every night. So a trailer there would reach something two, three million people. That's far more than billboards, mm -hmm. you know, uh, and it's enormous. Of course we don't reach everyone, we maybe don't reach the young, but we can do your impact campaign. So don't waste a lot of energy to do long impact campaigns before talking to the broadcasters. So I'm all for collaboration, and I think we should collaborate when it, when it comes to deal making as well, because we are open for, to film premieres most of the time, festival premiere, film premiere, and then broadcast. But the time for that period is shortening. So I'm now talking to distributors who are willing to go from festival to cinema to, to broadcast as one period of time where you can do the full marketing session and the full impact campaign during that time. And I think that's really good for the film most of the times. It's super interesting, Axel, because I have this discussion with distributors as well and producers about how being an SVOD service that quite often follows Windows, you know, later than theatrical and TV. And you're saying, it's okay to have a theatrical run, but I'd like it to be short. I then say, I'd love a TV run in the markets that I'm in. It'll create awareness. But let's not have 12 months of catch-up of that, of that first place. So it's, 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 you know, everybody, I suppose, is trying to collapse those windows. Yeah. So one, one short, brief question for both of you and before we move on to Marine. Um, I mean, I really like how you're, you're both kind of reframing this because um, uh, 
I mean, essentially what you're saying, and this is important for a lot of filmmakers who want their work to be seen by as many people as possible, to be out in communities, making an impact, making a difference around the issues that their, that their films address, is that, you know, in some ways it's, uh, it, can, it can be reframed as a point of competitive leverage if you're saying to filmmakers, we'll work with you on the impact campaign or we'll get, we can get you this many viewers around this issue, we will work with you around what you want to do theatrically, um, and then uh, and, and and slice up those markets in a different in a different way, rather than these worldwide in perpetuity all rights deals, which may sound like a big pot of money when when they're first offered, but when you begin to slice it up, may be reframed a little bit differently. So, are you seeing that as a point of kind of competitive leverage with filmmakers? Absolutely, and I think you know what Axel was talking about about you know potential audience and kind of market saturation. Like we are the same way. We say we're in 98% of American households, and you know on many of the the platforms, you know the algorithm is directing you to the same type of film because of something that you watched before. Your film is not likely going to reach someone with a totally different point of view. It's unlikely with the algorithm. That's the strength of the algorithm. For us. We play in all those states. We have events, you know, in again, 48 states, red states, blue states, um, and also, you know, half of our audience makes less than forty thousand dollars a year. So, if you think about that, people making less than forty thousand dollars a year, by and large, don't have HBO, don't have streaming services, um, and so for us, especially for filmmakers that are making films often about disenfranchised people, um, that's a real differentiator and, and a competitive advantage for sure. Just one quick more thing that I forgot to say. I know from, from the filmmaker point of view um, that our broadcasting uh, processes can be painfully slow. And uh, we acknowledge that. Uh, the financing of films, I think, is taking far too long these days. Um, and we can really be much better and answer quicker and be you know, much more effective in that whole, whole um, process. Um, so. We're, we're working on it, and we're working on you know, giving a little bit more for films that we all think are really important. And then we'll help you. We'll help you to do uh, debates, news, everything, to, to work together. That's the key. Work together. Work with us. And I think one more quick thing, just that we are trying to be super flexible, <laughs> which is countering what Axel's saying, which I totally agree with the spirit of what Axel's saying, but in the, in the States, for you know half the films that we're trying to license we will we cannot get we cannot get those rights we cannot get, we won't get the films but for us like really trying to be flexible and creative on windowing so that a filmmaker isn't forced into an either or choice but that the sales agent is able to put together a full deal that allows for festival theatrical broadcast and streaming um, and educational and you know and 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 foreign um, because otherwise the filmmaker in our market is being penalized and we're being penalized. Um, and so that's just something, again, how, how we've changed and, and trying to be um, open about it. But again, it has to be film by film because yeah. if, it's on a, if it's a really burning issue Agree. film uh, and then I have to wait two years to, to broadcast it, then it doesn't yeah. work. Marin's been yeah. trying to jump in with the comments, so I'm going to let you go ahead. And yeah, just to continue briefly on marketing, and it's a question for you both, actually. Um, you mentioned, uh, first of all, go see the broadcasters before you start an uh, impact campaign. 
but then um, I can imagine that the impact campaigns are slightly changing uh, nowadays compared to the past. And I liked your your remark on public algorithms that basically serve you things that you did not know you needed. Um, and um, I also wondered maybe to re redirect it first to you. Uh, you said you you learned how to improve your marketing and. Um, are you feeling that your marketing is indeed changing now uh, with the arrival of new players? And is it to the point that you are even creating different types of rappers? And is it even to the point that you are telling different stories? Yes, yes, and yes. Um, but I think it's happened. I mean, we we, we don't we have a small budget, right? So it's we have to stage it out, and we have to. Um, think how to do it uh, iteratively. Uh, so over the next two years, you know, so we've been, you know, staffing up internally our comms and marketing staffing, different skill set. We used to rely almost totally on publicists and tradi traditional press, um, but really staffing up in areas that have, um, you know, skill sets both in social media and video creation and, you know, kind of across the board. Uh, thinking about those partnerships and then thinking trying to get involved earlier so we can be a part of a film's festival release, we can be a part of a film's theatrical. Um, so yeah, it's changing everything we do and how we work with our stations too. Um, PBS is made up of 350 plus individual stations across America that program their own schedules. Um, and so for us, that's another key partner and how we talk to them and um, both tell our story on who we are but also how we market our films um, has to change too. I think I got two questions. Uh, I see if I remember them. Uh, I mean, the algorithm is one thing where it's not done yet, but that's on a broader scale. Uh, when it comes to the impact campaigns, the thing to avoid here is to do an impact campaign that will only reach the people who have the same views as you. Mm -hmm. And that's where I think public service media can help you because we can use the things that that are available internally, which is the news, the current affairs, the drama, the, all the other departments. So in an ideal world, we can actually create a lot of tension, a, a lot of things where your film will reach a much bigger audience that doesn't necessarily have the views uh, already. So, Marin, before I um, ask you to present, I'm going to invite Paul Powells from the European Documentary Network up, he's arrived, and take up a cozy space in the middle of the couch here. Welcome, Paul. It's quite an entrance. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so, Paul, you are going to go first, but I'm going to let Marin uh, present, and then, then we'll come to you if that's okay. okay. So, Marin, All right. uh, the floor is yours. And um, when, when, when you and I spoke last week, um, you were giving me an overview of you know some of the regulatory framework that is in process uh, in Europe, um, but why don't I, you please okay, go ahead and, and explain all that to our, yeah. our audience. Yeah, with pleasure. Um, uh, thank you for, for having me, and uh, I'll try to give a, a bit of an overview of what's indeed happening at the EU, um, and then obviously just focus on the things that are most relevant for, for this discussion, and also I guess most people in the room just want to know where is the money, and you don't care about too many laws. Um, I must also say I'm, um, I'm not, uh, I'm, I personally work at Creative Europe Media, which is a fund, um, but I'll also try to give a bit of an overview of the revised AVMSD directive, um, the Audiovisual Media Services Directive, 
um, because that is very topical and I was asked to, um, to talk a little bit about that and to talk what's happening there. But I'll start with Creative Europe Media and then a bit the bigger perspective and then this new um, revised directive. Um, Creative Europe Media, maybe to start, um, if you have any questions about that, we have Creative Europe Media desks and um, the Dutch and the Flemish desk are hosting this session and the Dutch desk is represented here by Andrea. So we have contacts all over Europe that can help you with loads of questions about Creative Europe Media. Um, but very briefly, um, it's uh, a fund that has been around since 1991. Um, it has built quite a legacy here in Europe, but uh, we are a little bit pushing above our weight. It's, it, it, it plays a role in many, um, in many fields, but it's not a, a huge fund, and I'll explain it in a bit why. Um, the program has, has two aims, and that is to, um, to preserve the cultural diversity in Europe on screens, and the other to, to help the European audiovisual sector compete. Um, and all of that centers around partnerships, what we just discussed. It's all about partnerships and it's all about creating co-productions. And for those reasons, the fund mostly interferes or helps, I must say, in the early stages and in the uh, stages after production. We don't put so much, so much money into production. We are mostly involved in the early stages, in trainings, for instance. There are loads of trainings, loads of documentary trainings also supported by um, Creative Europe Media to help you work together and to help create um, uh, joint stories. Um, that includes, for instance, ITVA Academy. And then after production, um, that includes markets like ITFA Forum. It also includes festivals like the ITFA Festival and uh, loads of other festivals across Europe, including Docs Lisboa, CPH Docs, well, you know the names. Um, and then distribution is one of the main uh, uh, strands. We put a lot of money in non-national distribution to make sure that stories are seen outside of uh, national borders, so that you are confronted, so that audiences are confronted with other views. And that is uh, a very important aim. The, also, the Europe, uh, Europa Cinemas Network has been supported since the beginning. So that's a, a rough overview. Um, it involves around uh, 2,000 projects per year, so that's a lot of agreements, a lot of contracts, a lot of administration. Um, and documentary is actually very well represented in all those different schemes. There are 14 schemes and documentary is very well represented in all of that. Um, the fund, we, we spend around 100 million per year. That's a lot of money, but if you put it in perspective, it is not. Um, and that is why also after multiple uh, positive independent evaluations, uh, we now proposed to increase this to 130 million uh, for the next seven years, and that is um, between uh, 2021 and 2027, so we're looking ahead. Um, the negotiations are now taking place, so if you ask what's happening now, that is what's happening now. The Commission made the proposals, the Parliament um, has a, uh, well, is issuing its opinion on those proposals, and then the Member States are also issuing their opinion over the next few months. And then hopefully within half a year those budgets are fixed. Um, but as I said, 
maybe it's important to put things in perspective. You, you just coined some numbers. You, you talked about um, 12 million, uh, sorry, 12 billion of investment from Netflix worldwide, we must say. Um, you talked about 18 billion of the EBU, that's only the EBU, and only Europe, so it, we should not compare those two figures. Um, and, uh, well, I also, um, if you look at some studies, the European audiovisual market is estimated at 111 billion. That's a lot of money. And um, obviously, none of us sees that money. <laughs> so it often goes in entertainment, etc. But let's keep this in mind. It's, it's, a, it's a large market of 111 billion. Um, and a lot of money indeed comes from public broadcasting. Um, uh, the, then a lot of money comes from advertising. A lot of money comes from pay TV. And then a very slight portion is coming now from the new players. And indeed, it's growing very fast, but for the moment, it's around 3%. So we should keep this in mind also, um, even though it's growing very fast and it needs to be monitored, at the moment, it's 3% of investment. Um, then the funds can also be compared to each other. The, the funds are only one part of the entire chain. Um, but if you look at public funds, uh, roughly uh, 2 billion is invested by the, the national public funds in Europe. Um, then there are the regional uh, public funds, um, I, if I'm not mistaken, roughly 500 million. And then there's Creative Europe Media with a roughly 100 million. Um, big amounts and obviously uh, Documentary is not um, taking the lion's share of those amounts. Um, but let's keep this in mind. If, and, and then if the question is what's happening now, well, what's happening now is, of course, the telecom players, we all know it, the, the on-demand players um, constituting 3%. And then, indeed, the motivations of those players are more commercial and they are different. And we, I think we should talk in a minute also if you run a subscription model, you have different motivations than when you run an advertising model, and you have different motivations than uh, um, uh, on-demand, how uh, do you say that, transaction VOD. Um, but indeed, for the moment, subscription models are prevailing. And indeed, for the moment, those subscription models are mostly dominated by Netflix and Amazon. But also, other players should not be forgotten, like Orange and, uh, and other uh, large platforms in Europe. Um, then, on the regulatory uh, um, front, there is since um, since two weeks ago, actually, an agreement now on revised rules for audiovisual media services, and that was a, a long process. Um, it was something that originates from 1989. In, in 1989, there was a new um, Television Without Frontiers directive. And obviously, that's uh, a little bit outdated. Um, so it has been revised multiple times. It has also been revised in 2010. And then it was renamed to the Audiovisual Media Services Directive. Uh, but even since 2010, a lot has changed. So that is why in 2016, the Commission proposed new rules. And after two years of negotiations with all the member states, there is now a deal on the table, and that will have quite some impact on all the players um, in the audiovisual landscape in, in Europe. Um, member states two weeks ago agreed on a deal um, that 
roughly, I, 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 I'm not going to go in all the details, but um, it roughly tackles um, rules about, for instance, protection of minors um, against harmful content. Um, it tackles rules about um, hate speech and um, it tackles rules about advertising, how much advertising is allowed on, uh, on broadcasting and how much advertising is allowed also on, on demand. Um, it tackles rules on the promotion and prominence of European productions. Um, there is uh, now an agreement that as of now um, all the um, players active in Europe uh, will need to have an, a catalogue of at least 30% European productions and also give prominence to those uh, productions. And that is something new. That means you don't have it in your back catalogue, but you need also to promote it. Um, and prominence can be done by different ways, by putting it on the, on the front page, by putting a search, by giving recommendation systems, etc. So that is partially protecting the European uh, sphere. Um, and yeah, all that to give a more fairer audiovisual landscape. I think that is the, the, the main message. The, um, the broadcasters have had a, a very uh, restrictive environment with loads of rules and so far um, other players have not and they now will also need to comply with this. It will include also uh, on-demand services and it will also include uh, so, uh, sharing uh, social media platforms that have um, um, that have a core business in videos. So when sharing platforms have um, are when their business case is built around sharing videos, then they will also need to comply with those requirements. Um, that is in a nutshell, I must say, because there are loads of technical details, and I will spare you those details. Um, the, the 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 main changes that are happening now and the timeline now is also very important because this is agreed, this is the general principles that have been agreed and over the next two years each European member state will uh, uh, adapt their laws. So all across Europe, all the countries, well all across the EU I must say, all the countries will adapt their laws uh, to comply with um, with these rules and that will have an impact and they will have flexibility also to go a bit further or, or to go um, um, to, to have extra requirements and most of you um, may face um, discussions in your countries. Uh, there is also an option to, um, to have levies for those, those um, players active in a country. For instance, when um, there is an on-demand service active in a certain EU member state, they can impose this player to contribute to the National Film Fund. Or they can impose um, uh, more direct levies, like, okay, you need to invest in those and those fields. Those things are governed at national level, but it will also have an impact. But I think it's, apart from the fact that um, those rules um, help uh, protect cultural diversity, I think it's also very important to have a more wider view. I think many people here don't see documentary as something that is limited to borders. It's, it's a, often a universal story and I'm also happy actually to, to, to have a discussion that is not limited to Europe alone. Um, but 
it's it's about the types of stories that are being told and um, yeah the in that sense AVMSD the revision may create opportunities um, it will it, well it will create extra investments that creates opportunities it will also um, Sorry, it will also impact maybe the types of documentaries that are being uh, invested in. And this is something uh, that I'm very curious to hear from you as well. So far, uh, there are the, the theatrical documentaries and the documentaries that we're used to seeing on public broadcasting. But now there are the, the docu-series that are more and more popular and the short formats. And very curious to hear your views on that. The, the deals change, of course, as soon as uh, you have more international players, they are more demanding and they demand rights all over the place. Um, and yeah, I think it's not up to, to us to look into the future, but this was a rough overview and I think the rest is more a group discussion. Great, thank you. Um, uh, so, uh, just one question, then uh, in, invite you all to, to, to weigh in and, and, and ask Marin questions. But uh, of the th so, this additional thirty million, it looks like is going to be added to the to to the hundred. Um, is that um, money just growing the the pie overall? Is it be the additional money? Is it, is it being targeted in any way, um, or is that yet to be um, decided? It's um, of course we have uh, ideas about that, and um, but those decide, those ideas are not decided yet. The, um, I think to to summarize it all, it's more an an, an evolution than a revolution. Um, there are certain schemes that work really well, but um, where the level of demand is so much higher than what we can grant, and. The, very often the quality of projects are very good, but we just cannot grant. So yes, there will be changes, um, but I think the main message is no, there will not be radical changes. Um, uh, so I guess you know, Axel and Justine and James, you know, uh, Marin talked about new formats, and Justine, you also talked about how POV is developing the POV shorts digital strategy. Um, how are how are you all in in your respective public media worlds and your streaming world um, responding to these kind of this new evolution of you know series um, uh, you know new formats coming through? Is it something that you're engaging with, or you're you're still looking primarily at the you know one hour ninety minute documentary? So thanks. I'll just give a short answer slowly, very slowly adapting. Uh, I mean, we're, we're not really developing international series. We're experimenting to do national stuff. Uh, but we're certainly looking into it, absolutely. Um, I, I mean, I'll speak for SVOD in Asia. You know, we are, we want to explore everything. You know, I think we, our foundation is feature docs and, and TV series, but the more, the longer the series, the more engagement you get, which is the super important thing in, in SVOD, the reason you know, people have to come back each night um, is is the reason that they'll continue to subscribe. Um, and then on the shorter form stuff, you know, we're trying to be focused on what we can build the foundation of the platform with, but absolutely looking at sort of explainer videos and shorter form um, stuff that we know will bring us to a younger um, 
you know, probably more diverse audience. And then ultimately, you know, people who are interested in documentary and current affairs and news and are interested in podcasts. And that's the sort of thing with a digital platform you can also offer over time. And we're, um, we're doing it in stages. So we did the shorts. Um, we Our colleagues at Independent Lens, which is another PBS um, doc strand in America, they do a web series uh, program called Indie Lens Storycast. So we kind of divided and conquered there. Um, and then we are launching a podcast initiative in the next six months. And then with series, um, right now it's just an open conversation with PBS that if there is a series that resonates with us that we want to pursue, that, that they're open to the conversation. Um, so it's not something that we're, we're not changing our mission or changing what we do, but we're, we're looking for opportunities um, that are on brand. Um, Paul, welcome. Um, Paul Powell's head of the European Documentary Network. Um, and Paul, um, you've been running this media and society initiative, um, which I think touches on a lot of these issues um, and certainly have a, a macro view from where you sit of how the, the landscape is shifting and how that's affecting um, public broadcasting in particular. So I want to give the floor to you. And I, know, I think you have some slides, right? So uh, Axel, maybe you can um, pass along so you can control your own slides from there. You have no idea how bad I am with this kind of thing. It always goes wrong. Two, wow, that's complicated. So Next time, give me one You've got 50% button. chance of getting it right. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, first of all, I want to apologize for being late, but I had a double, double booking, so I rushed through Amsterdam to be here, and I'm happy to be here. Uh, I don't consider myself to be a specialist in this matter. I'm not a broadcaster. I'm not a streaming service. But we do represent, of course, um, a lot of documentary filmmakers um, in uh, Europe and beyond. Actually, we should be called the Global Documentary Network. And actually, um, for a while already, we could feel from the reactions from our members and people that we met that indeed things are changing in the media landscape. And uh, I've said it many, many times, I'm a representative of the dinosaurs and the dinosaur generation. And I really, really mean it. Um, lovely documentaries have been made, are being made, um, but for a dying audience. Well, sorry for using the word dying, but for a diminishing audience. Um, and I'm not sure whether we as a documentary world are ready uh, to react to that. I've already used the image of you know, the dinosaurs looking up in the sky and see the meteorite of the digital environment coming closer and closer and closer. It's been coming closer for three, four years already. And now it's fairly big and I think it's going to hit us very, very soon. And I am afraid that everything that's happening now uh, in this world of um, uh, internet technology and web technology and streaming services. I think at the moment it's profitable for a couple of big companies, but it's a big danger for the community of documentary filmmakers. Um, literally thousands of documentaries are being made uh, every year, literally thousands. Many of them privately financed or uh, with, with some local funds, but very, very, very little investment by um, these uh, platforms or by these new players, except we all know the, uh, the, uh, the couple of exceptions that are there. So at this moment, I don't really see a benefit coming from it, but I do see a lot of dangers. You might have heard that there are a couple of uh, films that have been picked up and I think it was a big frustration from the public broadcasters that in events like the Forum 
all the public broadcasters would be sit around, sitting around the table. Some of them had already invested some uh, development money. The project is growing, the potential is there. And then Big Boss Netflix came, put a lot of money on the table, at least they claim they put a lot of money on the table, and the contract is lost and the film can never be shown, uh, or at least not soon, on public broadcasters. The lure of money is uh, very, very uh, dangerous. And um, I personally know a couple of uh, producers who already did that and are now regretting it. Because first of all, and I don't know the details, but the conditions being offered by Netflix uh, are not that great. But what is more important, it destroyed the network that they have been building over many, many years with the different public broadcasters in Europe. And I think that is the strength that we and you, as documentary filmmakers in uh, Europe, has is this variety of subjects, of styles, of regions. It, it's 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 a treasure, and I, and that can only uh, exist because of co-production, co-production, pre-sales, even acquisition. But that, for a long time, has been our business model, and that, in my opinion, is now being destroyed. The bigger companies, a couple of them will survive. The smaller companies and the middle-sized companies um, are really going to suffer from that. As you know, um, <clears throat> we have done this survey, the media and society uh, survey, because we were asking you, what do you see as the challenges in this new situation? And what do you see as the opportunities in this uh, situation? And how do you see the future? And these results have now um, or are being analyzed. Last Sunday we gave a first presentation. I cannot take you through it because it's too complicated. I need Willemine Sanders or Eline Livemont, who are the analysts, to explain it to you. But I did bring some uh, slides with me that will show you what at this moment uh, are the advantages that people get from this um, environment. And uh, Wow, am I doing it in the right way? Next, okay. Nope. Anyway, I'll just zip through. Um. <laughs> Sorry for that. Ah, here we go. Now, my eyes are... Um, here you see, uh, we asked the uh, producers and the directors, uh, where, are, uh, where is your financing coming from? And I'm not going to take you to the list, but look at the very bottom. Digital video platforms, 0.25%. And I think that the next slide is... Um, uh, is making a distinction between uh, producers, those are the green ones, and other documentary professionals who also need money uh, in the documentary environment. And you can see that the digital video platforms uh, are very, very, very low. Now, I have to say, I think that we have to be careful with these figures because um, we don't really know who the production companies or who the uh, people were who responded to the survey. And I have the feeling that most of them are indeed middle-sized uh, companies and smaller companies. I believe that if we would have some of, had some of the moguls answering that the percentage could have been a little bit higher. But still, I think that this image uh, tells you a lot. Um, here uh, we look at the collaboration with the non-traditional uh, players. And you see everything that's at the left, it's uh, negative. There is no collaboration at all, and at the uh, right, it's uh, green, uh, the great deal. Well, once again, if you look at uh, the top content aggregators, local video on demand platforms, international video on demand platforms, um, you can see that 
those are the top uh, ones that uh, people are really, really not uh, happy with. And <clears throat> the same here. Um, the co-productions with um, non-traditional players, you can also see there uh, 81% of the people who says that we do no co-productions with the indicated stakeholders, being in this case uh, a video platform. Um, the same here. And once again, I'm not going to go through the details. Uh, once in a couple of weeks, this uh, information will be made available to you with an explanation by the people who made the survey and who actually will analyze these results. But I just wanted to bring you these slides, and I think that was the last one, yes, um, <clears throat> to show how little the importance of these uh, platforms is at this moment. And I don't really know uh, how you are going to react to it. I believe that, and that's why I'm referring to the dinosaurs, we have to step into another way of thinking. I grew up in the time of 55-minute documentaries, 75, 90 minutes. I believe that we have to step out of that uh, paradigm and start producing another kind of documentaries. And I'm happy to see that in many European countries, film funds are actually changing direction and making it possible for other kinds of documentaries. Short-form documentaries, documentaries aiming at kids, and documentaries in a completely different style uh, that some of us might hate, but the kids seem to like it. So. I believe that we are uh, facing, and it's a cliche, I know it, but we are really, really facing a revolution. And in a revolution, some people disappear and other people appear and, and grow. And I believe that we are now at a turning point. I have been saying this for a couple of years because we saw it coming. And I believe that now we've reached the point that in a very, very short time, a lot of things might change. And I'm a little bit worried about what's going to happen to the public broadcasters. Are they still going to do linear uh, broadcasting in a couple of years? I'm not sure. I see that many of them put a lot more emphasis now on everything that is happening uh, on the web and through the IT technology. And personally, I believe that we are going in that direction. And just to conclude, a couple of weeks ago, uh, I was in uh, Tokyo Docs, where we had a whole panel of uh, decision makers. I don't call them commissioning editors anymore, but decision makers who were listening uh, to um, the pitches. Uh, many people, like maybe 40. And okay, people pitch, and then questions are asked, and people uh, defend their projects. I would say that 90% of the questions and the remarks came from broadcasters. 8% came from Axel, and 2% only came from uh, the people who were representing uh, these new platforms. And there was one person there, a producer, who also owns a couple of digital channels, and he came to me and he pointed at all these people who were representing the, the platforms, and he said, this is fake. This is absolutely fake, and people don't understand how vulnerable they are now. Because everybody put, puts their hope on them and they don't have money, or at least they're not spending money now. Maybe in a couple of years they will, but how are we going to gap or finance that gap between now and that period? So that was not a really positive image and I have to say that it has been confirmed by the uh, media and society uh, study. So keep your eyes open for the document. Uh, it will be made available on our website in a couple of weeks and then uh, we will be working to uh, 
define it even further and uh, present a white book uh, next year in November here in ITVA, where I think we will be have a more clearer view on that. But as you might have understood, I'm not really optimistic about all this. <laughs> well, that's actually maybe a good segue. I'm going to ask you to hold your questions um, for Paul, because I think actually, um, James, yeah. let, me, let me hand this over to you, because I think you're coming from a different space with different ideas. Um, so please. Uh, yeah, I mean, completely. So from what I've just heard, I mean, I am um, I'm launching in fundamentally emerging markets, Africa, Southeast Asia, MENA, um, um, Middle East, North Africa, and, and then Australia and New Zealand as the developed markets. But the, the distribution and the penetration of documentaries in Laos and Ghana and, you know, Indonesia is so tiny and so not underfunded, not zero funding, right? That uh, in, in my mind and in the people that I've spoken to in those markets, you know, bringing a documentary service to those markets is, is such a, you know, exciting thing. And, 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 and you know, you almost feel like the, the sort of the cavalry coming in. And here, listening to you guys, I'm like, oh, no, we're actually the demon seed. Uh, and, 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 I, and I see how that could be the case in Europe, you know, because there's a rich history of distribution of these documentaries through, through free-to-view platforms, and, and, you know, that is under pressure. And there's a rich funding uh, 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 sort of history that, you know, that the, would that the problem be there's just not enough funding? There's absolutely none in the markets that I'm dealing in. So... So anyway, that's just a, that, it's been really eye-opening here, hearing all you guys speak, but I will say it's a very different uh, marketplace in Europe, a very different uh, landscape than in the markets that, that I've been in. So just to introduce myself very briefly, I um, was working for a pay TV platform called Foxtel in, in Australia and um, launched their SVOD platform, which... Um, which was sort of designed to fail because they were getting $130 a month in subscriber uh, revenues, and so they wanted to launch a platform that would work, but not very well, right, to, to go up against Netflix. And if you know anything about Netflix, they relish a, a, a competitor who doesn't want to, you know, win. Um, and, so, and so I saw the writing on the wall. I moved up to Southeast Asia where I saw there was a huge opportunity in an emerging um, market which hadn't had didn't have and Netflix in 2014 wasn't in these markets and I moved up with three other guys to um, build a service called I have to say in retrospect unimaginatively iFlix which um, launched in 2015 before Netflix was there in Southeast Asia and is now in uh, 25 26 countries in Southeast Asia um, sub-Saharan Africa and MENA and it has about 15 million users now, we got to that scale by going very local straight away. Um, and so, you know, it wasn't just uh, an office in, in Kuala Lumpur where we were based and then everybody directing things from there. We had, you know, 40 people in Manila, you know, 25 in, in Bangkok, um, almost 70 in, in Jakarta and, and, and rolling out similarly throughout um, Africa and Middle East. Now, cost of hiring people there is a lot lower. So we, we had that opportunity. And then we went out at a, between... 250 and three US dollar price points. So we, we had the opportunity to get to scale. But even then, less than 5% of people have credit cards in those markets. And so you've got to figure out ways to get them to pay. And you bundle the services with mobile bills. And everybody is on mobile rather than, you know, there are no iPads in these markets. Um, 
So anyway, I left um, IFLA as, as, as proud as I was of, of what we'd built. I, um, I as a content person, am uh, less interested in Filipino soap operas and Korean dramas uh, than, than I am in, in documentary. And so set out um, believing that Netflix and iFlix and Amazon had had proven that the migration from traditional pay TV to online versions of it was successful in some some degree. The the next things to go would be the the verticals in in within pay TV. So the key ones, I suppose, are movies, sports, kids, and factual. Um, movies is a piracy problem wherever you go. Um, Sports and kids will be owned by Disney in, in in some way, shape, or form. And factual was a really, I mean, it's my my passion, and and it's it's um, the sort of fragmented one that that w was both a huge opportunity in the markets that I was in to start distributing. So um, I'm going backwards. I don't know if that's the right direction. <laughs> I love this 1960s remote control, but um, so. Um, so many things to talk about based on what you guys have discussed, but I'll, I'll just launch into this. I mean, I think demonstrably, you know, 25,000 new documentaries are, are, are made every year. Um, and I believe it's a golden age of factual. And certainly, you know, um, the, the box office figures we've all just talked about. And, and if you look at somewhere like the UK, television viewership of, of documentary and current affairs stuff uh, is, is up 20% since 2014. So... You know the problem, and I and I, I'm, my expertise is not free to air or theatrical, so I'm going to park those windows and talk about the pay TV system, where the channels that used to be the providers of the high-end, factual, deep um, sort of um, investigative stories are moving to the middle, um, which in this case is reality TV, scripted content. If you want to make a, a documentary about or a story about Einstein, you make it as a scripted drama. Um, so the people who loved these documentaries now don't really have a place in traditional pay TV, um, and they started to look online. And, and Netflix, say what you will, is making some fantastic um, documentaries, and they are upsetting the ecosystem in ways that I believe are good and bad, um, but they're certainly raising the bar of quality of what is made in, in documentaries. So, 25,000 docs a year, increasingly online channels are growing, traditional pay TV certainly channels are, are, are shrinking, you know, and uh, our hypothesis is that there's an opportunity to build a service that is purely based on factual and um, documentary and current affairs content. But it's a hypothesis, and, and there are some other people doing it out there, and they haven't proven that hypothesis, I don't think, successfully yet. Um, and so what we had to do, certainly in emerging markets where um, documentary content is not well distributed, is find new models of licensing it. And so the opportunity I had with um, iWonder was to, first of all, create a channel on iFlix that was an iWonder channel. And then um, they have 15 million users now, and so the, um, the, you can test the demand in markets that are not traditionally massive documentary lovers, um, but there are a lot of people in those markets, 700 million in Southeast Asia alone. So, um, you know, there's, there's high cost to localization and, and marketing. Most people haven't heard of most documentaries. Um, but, again, 
in, in the process of trying to prove our, our hypothesis, we move to a model that has a couple of features to it. Uh, we do performance-based or rev-share licensing from distributors, which a lot of them roll their eyes at because they've seen pennies from other people who've tried this. We do have the advantage of iFlix's 15 million users driving those views, and therefore we've, we've returned to distributors some, some genuine um, revenues. Um, we also want to be um, the, I don't want to say anti-Netflix, but but some of the things that have been raised about Netflix is you don't know what's happened to your show or your, your feature when it goes on. So we give extensive data back to the distributors. Um, we give psychographic, demographic data, breakdowns by country where it's been viewed by device. Um, and where we create, and iFlix is trying to get to 100% subtitling uh, in their markets, where we create subtitles, we just provide them back to distributors at no cost. Um, so, you know, and in some cases, the subtitles in smaller documentaries are, you know, are worth as much as licensing the documentary in these markets um, itself. So, I suppose it goes back to this idea that producers, where, you know, they're considering taking the global buyout check um, and, and distributors, uh, versus an opportunity where we're buying a specific window in a specific set of countries that maybe, you know, are, are not going to lower their ability to distribute means that if they can be a little bit more entrepreneurial and sales-oriented, they can sell it multiple times over through multiple windows to many, many different regions. Um, that doesn't, that sounds very easy, and I know it's not, and I know that means it's a different skill set, um, but that is, I think, the opportunity for the future. So just very quickly to what iFlix is and how we're trying to integrate current affairs, you will have on your landing page the option to choose um, a news feed of, let's say, BBC or CNN or Reuters or Deutsche Welle. And you, as your news feed pops up, which we will curate, um, the, the news articles of the day that we, that we choose, as your news feed pops up um, with Khashoggi, will then present you with documentaries that are related to it. Um, murder in Malaysia about um, a, 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 a murder related to the Najib government that's just been involved in the 1MDB scandal. Um, you know, Kim Jong-un, Kim Jong-un's uh, assassination in Kuala Lumpur. Um, and you can do it with climate change, you can do it with gun control, which unfortunately will continue to have, you know, stories that we can associate documentaries about that with, and hashtag me too, Russia, you know, Korea. And that's just the way we're going to help people discover the catalog um, through resonant um, stories of the day. And we'll be licensing, you know, current affairs programming from the people, the news providers of that programming. Um, yeah, and that's it. Any, available anywhere, anytime. We are going out at a subscription model in developed markets because we believe that those audiences have proven that they will pay for content. Um, and then in the in the emerging markets, we're going out at an ad-supported model um, for now until we get to the point where people are comfortable with paying for content. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. We will have time for questions. Um, uh, I think we've been given a little bit of an extension. I've been a, a poor timekeeper here. Um, so a, a, a different model, kind of a hybrid model somewhat in terms of um, uh, the unlike um, Netflix and more like public broadcasters, you will share data. You will allow producers to retain rights. Um, uh, and it's also a place where content that 
perhaps has had a premiere on a public broadcaster can still exist. Um, Absolutely. Um, so a more and, cooperative. And to that point, you know, we 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 don't have the amazing 54% of audience tuning in at 8 p.m. to play a promo to. So we want that awareness to be built, and we're happy to window. But of course, there's windowing, and then there's the contents completely dead by the time it gets to you. So we have to try and strike that balance. So before I open this up to the floor, Paul, does that make feel make you feel a little more optimistic? <laughs> if it works. <laughs> A little bit. <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm sure I'm sure it will grow and there will be uh, new opportunities. I'm not that worried uh, about it because I can see positive signs. I'm just more um, worried about the time that it will take to get there and what it will do to our community. Right. I'm afraid that we're going to lose some very, very valuable people to that. So a final I comment from Axel and then we're going to have I just five minutes of questions. questions to Jim. I mean, that looks a bit like our player, you know, but uh -huh. we have our own news and our, you know, our own produced documentaries and all that. So my two questions is, how much does that cost per month and how much do you invest in production of documentaries? So we haven't launched direct-to-consumer yet. Right now we're just a channel on iFlix, which is more of a wall of posters, right? The news feed and direct-to-consumer piece is launching in Australia, New Zealand, and Singapore in about six weeks, and we'll go out at a four ninety-nine US price point equivalent in all those markets, so about about seven dollars Australian. And how much of that will you invest in production of documentary? Uh, ultimately, uh, the lion's share of it. Right now, we um, we don't have a three billion dollar budget for the last <laughs> quarter, um, so so we have to get some traction before we. But nobody can build a, any service on non-exclusive, non you know original content uh, over time. So, another opportunity. So I want to open this up to the floor. Um, the, we have a roving mic. We're going to take about five minutes worth of questions. Uh, if you could just identify yourself. So yes, right here in the middle with the black leather jacket on, sir. Just shortly, it's, it's, it's very different in different territories. I know that in India it's been particularly difficult because Dordashan is dominant and they don't have any documentary slots. So where, what, where do you go as a filmmaker? So, so that you have to applaud the new platforms where you actually can show your films. That, that I totally understand that. Um, I think we would be probably talking about the same things if it were without Netflix, because the revolution is not about Netflix. It's, it's about YouTube, Facebook, it's about every platform there is. Yeah, and I'll just say on the disruption thing, sorry, very quickly, 
you know, the cycles of disruption are getting faster and faster and faster. And there was, you know, movies in the 1920s and they were disrupted by television 40 years later. And then television was disrupted by pay TV 20 years later. And then 15 years later, you know, SVOD. And so I have no doubt that SVOD will be disrupted by, you know, transmitting video to the back of your eyeballs in five years. No, bl and blockchain. We'll all be blockchain. <laughs> yeah. Blockchain right. would disrupt everything. Yeah. Remember when the... Uh, all the studios were terrified of videotapes, home videotapes, that that was going to destroy the movie business. So, yes, down here. Um, just a, a brief question. I think there's a, there's a lot to think about, and of course, uh, um, new filmmakers are maybe attracted because it is this public that is not watching television to uh, try to find a deal with Netflix, but of course the algorithm doesn't tell us anything, so we, we must be protected somehow, I think this, this is important from, from the network uh, point of view, but mm, you mentioned something about uh, staying with us and being with us, and in the framework of, for example, applying to Creative Europe, one of the most important things is to have a letter of intention for broadcasters. And I speak, maybe, for many of the people here, that's one of the hardest things when you're applying for Creative Europe, it's just to find a letter. You can have meetings, you will have, um, Many emails, you will have good coffees, but this letter is the golden ticket, huh? Mm. And it's very hard to find. So you're, you're, you're now posing maybe an, uh, uh, a good uh, bridge to sort of revise this, this deal as well. And within the framework of the biggest fund um, that, that, that we have in Europe, it could be also interesting to, to rethink what, what does this letter mean? Or, or, or what is this uh, support? Uh, from the beginning can sort of bridge through and sort of protect us to, to what, what you're posing today. I think it's, it's something to think about. It's, yeah, it's great to hear that because we, we write them all the time. And my colleague, uh, Chris Hastings, if you want to wave your hand there, is another person uh, in the PBS system um, who runs a, a, a strand called Doc World. So um, we're always open to filmmakers. And if a letter of support is helpful, please reach out. Indeed, for Creative Europe, of course, over the next um, two, well, over the next year, I should say, the, the big lines of the new program are taking shape, and all those things are taken into account, the new realities. And very good point, I take it home, and uh, all those remarks are now collected. Yeah. So I'm afraid we have to wrap it up there, but I think overall it sounds like there are opportunities despite some of the challenges we're facing. So um, please thank all of our panelists for spending the time and giving their expertise. Thank you for listening. Please check out other podcast episodes and video recordings, other talks and events of ITFA at itfa.nl and subscribe to the podcast to stay up to date.